You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would unstop our ears, uh, that we might behold you, the living God, and Lord, that we might know you and be transformed uh, so that we may love you and serve you all the days of our lives and that we would know that perfect freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, We've arrived at Exodus chapter 3 this morning. Uh, It's always helpful if you read ahead because I'm not going to be reading the entire chapter uh, as we go. And we're going to pick up speed uh, because even though we've been taking a chapter a week, uh, we're only going to we're going to do Exodus in 12 weeks. And so uh, be prepared for us to start picking up. But this week we are in Exodus chapter 3. And does anyone know what happens in Exodus chapter 3? If you've got it open, you can see there's one big thing that happens in Exodus chapter 3. The burning bush. Chris, ah, extra, extra wafer for you uh, next communion Sunday. All right, yeah, the burning bush. This is uh, a pivotal moment uh, in uh, the life of Moses. And when I'm reading through Exodus, I can't help but think um, uh, and about uh, the things that aren't said in the book of Exodus. Uh, reading between the lines and, and things that, that are written down for us that I don't know what they mean. So, for instance, we read that Jethro, his father-in-law, is a priest of Midian. Does anybody know what that means? No, it, it can mean that, that he's an actual priest of the Midianite pagan religion. Uh, it, it could, it's a stretch, uh, but it could mean that he's a sort of government official, uh, a magistrate of sorts uh, in Midian. Uh, but most likely, it's, it's the former. And so what was Moses' religious life like while he was tending his father-in-law's flocks in Midian? Uh, how was God forming him and, and how was God shaping him uh, in a land that didn't worship the living God, as far as we know, as far as we know. But we do know that God is, is working in the life of Moses in order to make him the man that God is calling him to be, the one who's going to lead his people out of Egypt, out of bondage, into the land flowing with milk and honey that we read here in Exodus 3. Someone once said that God is not so much interested in making plans as he is in making people. More specifically, I think that we could say God is not so much interested in making plans as he is in making a man or a woman. Because that's what Exodus is about, isn't it? We talked about last week. Why didn't God just squash Pharaoh? Why didn't he just knock him out? I mean, sometimes we think that in our own lives, don't we? You know, God, why don't you just fix this? Uh, Whether it's something on a large existential scale like poverty or or hunger or or war or whether it's the person that works down the hallway from us lord just squash them right get get them out of the way and if you were to do that life would be grand but what we see in exodus and we really see throughout the bible is that god tends to accomplish his plans by using us you and me and that's a real mercy that we have this treasure in jars of clay that is of God and not of us, that we're cracked pots, and yet God in His mercy uses us to do His will. 
And that isn't that, that God sort of gives us a little bit of a nudge and that we do all the work because we see in the life of Moses and the assurances that he gives Moses even here in chapter 3 are that I'm with you and you're just the instrument, but I'm the musician. I'm the one who is going to make this happen. I'm not asking you to be successful. I'm calling you to be faithful. That's all I'm asking. Now, I say that's all I'm asking, but, but that's a big deal, isn't it, here with the things that God is going to ask Moses to do. To go and face down Pharaoh. Uh, to, to, and, and that, what I find is the things that you think are the hardest things that God is calling you to do are nothing compared to what comes next. So just when you think that confronting Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, that that's the hardest thing that you're going to do, try leading a grumbling rebellious nation through the wilderness for 40 years. He'd take Pharaoh any day of the week after that. I'd much rather go back and have a confrontation with Pharaoh because at least then I knew where everybody stood. Now I'm confused, I'm frustrated. And it turns out that what that does is it causes Moses to have a greater and greater reliance on the Lord himself. And so God is not so much making plans here as he is making Moses. God's great burden was to labor in the heart of Moses. His focus is bringing into the life of Moses that has grown. His focus is bringing into the life of Moses that has grown in knowing God. And so what God is doing is he labors in the heart of Moses is he wants Moses to know him. That's what he wants Moses to be. That's what he wants him to do. And it turns out that the real work to be done on Moses is to be done now. The formation of Moses wasn't in Pharaoh's household or even while tending the flocks and raising a family, but now. All that stuff was helpful. We talked about how in God's providence, Moses was placed in the right place at the right time with the right people so that he had the upbringing of a son of Pharaoh. He had access to the education that he wouldn't have had otherwise. And certainly that's going to be helpful. But what we see here is that Moses can have all the life skills and talents that the world has to offer. But if his heart hasn't been changed by the living God, all those don't matter an iota. They just don't because worldly wisdom applied to this situation and often to basically every situation in our lives can only go so far. It might help, but does it heal? I mean, that's the great story about Frank Limehouse when he was first ordained at St. James Church on James Island in Charleston. And he wrote this sermon. And he was so proud of himself and he thought it was such a great sermon that he sent it off to Bishop Allison, uh, Fitz Allison, for him to read. And uh, Fitz had it for almost a week and didn't hear back. So Paul, I mean, uh, Frank uh, called him and said, uh, Bishop, did you get my sermon? And he said, yes, I, I received it. And he said, well, what did you think? And he said, well, Frank, uh, it was very helpful, but it wasn't that healing. And Frank thought rats, <laughs> right? Because in life, we don't, Moses doesn't just need help. Uh, he needs healing. He needs God to do a work on his heart. And he needs to know what it means to be in relationship with God and to trust him for his everything. 
And so now God speaks directly to Moses and into history. And this, I think, is the great difference between wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge. Uh, All of us are in this room uh, really well-educated people uh, by the world's standards. Uh, We know a lot. Uh, I'm looking out now and I'm thinking, I could be on a desert island with y'all. Like, we'd make it. Right, we'd make it, and 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 we'd be able to to figure it out. Uh, but there's a difference between having knowledge and possessing possessing the wisdom of the Lord. And I, I found that uh, to be um, uh, something that has stood out to me uh, in the past couple years. Is I, I've spoken to older people, and I've always I've always I was born old. Uh, but uh, even growing up, people would remark that all of my friends were older. And, uh, and even now, I would say that, that I relate to people, I'm more likely to relate to people who are older than me than younger than me. And part of it is if you're older than me, you've, you've been through a whole lot more. You know a whole lot more than I do. And I, I want to hear your experiences and I want to know uh, what you've been through. Uh, but I begin to notice that there's a, a great difference between knowing a lot about something and actually possessing wisdom. And I think that that wisdom is from knowing God. And so my prayer as I get older is that, Lord, that I wouldn't just grow in knowledge, but I'd grow in wisdom, that I would be wise uh, in the things of God and not simply knowledgeable or wise in the things of this world. And so I often encounter people uh, who are mature in years, but I can tell that the knowledge and the wisdom that they're bringing to the situation is actually their own life experience, which is fine in and of itself, uh, but it lacks that depth of insight and wisdom that comes from knowing God. And we know these people, don't we? That we're around them and we can just tell that they've met with God. Um, uh, the, The wife of Derek Swan who I've uh, taken up a correspondence with. Uh, uh, Ken Wynn is, uh lives in Swansea. She's well into her 80s. And uh, what caused me to, to, to take up a correspondence with her was I heard her interviewed in a documentary on Martin Lloyd-Jones. And she's the star of the documentary by, by far. She's just great. And, uh, and in it, she talks about her, fa- her, her husband, Derek, uh, was a Welsh preacher like Lloyd-Jones, had served as Lloyd-Jones associate at Westminster Chapel and went on to be a great pastor in the church uh, in Wales. And um, she says that, you know, you can tell, especially in, with preachers, uh, in the way that they preach, that they had met with God. And she said, and then there were preachers that I would listen to, and I would think that man is all alone up in that pulpit. That poor man is all alone. And I think that that's true of Christians who, who've been far bent with God, who've, who've actually uh, met with God and wrestled with God and know God. And we see the difference in Moses now and, in the, and, and what he will become. Because right now it's clear that Moses really doesn't know God very well. But he will. Because God is constantly working in his heart and drawing him to to himself. And so that with all the worldly knowledge that he has, that's nothing in comparison to knowing God. I mean, what was it that uh, uh, Tyndale said uh, about the, um, about, you know, the, the plowman? 
The plowman who, who reads his Bible uh, has more knowledge of God uh, than, uh, than any of the great scholars in religion in Europe. And the difference being that that plowman knows God. So Moses uh, has taken on the business of his in-laws. He's left Egypt behind and he's tending the flocks of Jethro. And while Moses is shepherding on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, uh, some, this is a little footnote for those of you who are paying close attention. Uh, sometimes Mount Horeb is called Mount Sinai. There's a debate over whether or not Sinai and Horeb are the same place. So John Calvin believed that they were. Calvin believed that the eastern side of the mountain was called Sinai and the western side was called Horeb. A lot of Jewish scholars believe that it was a sort of mountain with two peaks and one was called Sinai and one was called Horeb. Uh, but there is a minority position that says that they're two different places. Uh, but as I go through uh, the Old Testament, it does seem to me that they're talking about generally the same place. So here on Horeb, Moses sees a bush that is burning, but is not consumed. And this angel of the Lord, which means messenger, that's what angel means, is to be a messenger, is none other than God himself. And so let's pick it up here in chapter 3. We will, re we will read a little bit. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flaming of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, this is where we realize that Moses lacks wisdom. He lacks knowing God. Uh, because Moses is walking along like any of us would, and he sees this bush on fire, and he knows that it's not burning up. Well, one, if you just see a bush burning in the middle of the wilderness, you're probably thinking, well, that's neat. Uh, but then as you look closely, you see that it's not being consumed. And so Moses wants to get a, t a closer look, and it says that he turns aside in order to go and see this thing, and why it is that the bush is not being consumed, and God stops him. Now, why does God stop him? He gives us clear. What's that? To save his life. Right? So approaching God in the way that Moses was to approach him would be to his own destruction. And he says, Moses, take your shoes off for the ground on which you stand is holy. What I think Moses is learning here and that we need to learn is that when we approach God, we approach him on his terms and not our own. That's what he's saying, because the narrative of the Bible tells us that God is actually approachable, isn't he? Uh, that, that God is not saying, you can't get too close to me, but actually the word of, of God tells us that, that God desires to have an, an intimacy with us. And we, that actually is going to happen. So later on in Exodus, we hear Moses talking to God as if he's talking to a friend and vice versa. But here in these early stages of the relationship, Moses is just going to sort of casually walk up and say, oh, I, I'd like to see this thing. 
And Moses says, um, God says, no, no, no. You're coming into the presence of the living God. And we surely live in a world where we all act like Moses. And we forget whose presence we come into. Now, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, what we're doing is not just kind of coming together as a, as a group of people uh, like Rotary. Uh, we're coming together as God's people around God's word. And we are the earthly manifestation of the heavenly dwell of the heavenly hosts. I mean, do you know that? Like what we're doing is getting a glimpse of heaven and being brought up into heaven, which is why we use phrases like lift up your hearts. Because what we're doing is not just gathering around for a good sermon, but we're actually coming into the presence of the living God. So when we come together, what is it like? Now, on the one hand, it is a family gathering, isn't it? But what I I really have loved to see at the Advent uh, is one person said that when we come together as a church, uh, there should be a hubbub and then a hush. So, of course, we want to greet one another when we come in and and say, you know, good morning. How was your week? Press on, dear sister. Press on, dear brother. Uh, How can I pray for you? Hey, I've been praying for you about this. God has given me a word to encourage you with this week. We want to do all of those things. but, But then all of a sudden there should be a hush as we come into the presence of the living God. Now, the ground that Moses is on is holy because of what? Because of God, right? It doesn't have an objective holiness. And so I want to dissuade us of thinking that there are places in the world that are more holy than anywhere else. Uh, You know, somebody asked me, but don't you think that God is more present at inside the building of the Advent than outside the building? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, if you go and Shut your eyes and pray in the middle of 6th Avenue. You will see the Lord. You will encounter him. It's a joke. Y'all can laugh. If there is a feeling that God is more present here, it's because of what we're doing and whose presence we're in. Right? That's why the articles say that the church of God is the people of God gathered around his word. God's word God's pure word preached and his sacraments rightly and duly administered. That's what we're doing. And if those things, if faithfulness to God's word are not present, uh, then God's not present. And you're better off just sleeping in on a Sunday or or going and having a nice brunch. Uh, But if if you're in a place where God's word is faithfully preached, regardless of what it looks like or, or wherever it is, That's where God is and you're standing on holy ground. And that's why we do tend to attribute uh, a greater notion uh, to certain places because we've experienced God in those places. So it's perfectly natural to have an attachment to a church or, you know, it might be the church you grew up in. And it's not sentimentality. It's that's the pew I was sitting in when I came to know the Lord. Uh, That's where I was standing when I was married. That's where I was watching when I saw my child baptized. So, yes, that's a powerful way to connect us to a physical place. Uh, And yet, uh, if God is taken out of that, 
then it's just a place. The real difference is where God is showing up and making himself known and manifesting himself to the point that people's lives are being changed for the Lord Jesus. And so when Moses wants to sort of casually walk on up to the bush, God says, no, no, no. Now, there is something special um, uh, about if you've ever had the chance, and we're trying to get over there, surely, but uh, going over to, to Israel to see the sights. And I like the north of Israel much better uh, because your eyes are actually seeing things that Jesus saw. So you see the Sea of Galilee and, and you're there where he probably preached the Sermon on the Mount. And as the sun goes down, all of a sudden you see this ancient village up on the hill, uh, lights start coming on. And you wonder, is that, is that the, the city on the hill that Jesus was talking about? Uh, or you go to Nazareth or, or, or any of these places. But then when you get down into Jerusalem, anytime Jesus did anything, they build a church. It's sort of like George Washington slept here. Uh, to the point that it's actually really hard to get any sort of concept uh, about what happened. And, uh, and when Lauren and I were there once, uh, we were in Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, there's this, uh, they have this sort of marble floor. Uh, actually, I think it's slate, but there's a hole in the middle of it and just a sort of empty cylinder. And for some reason, where they say that the manger was, and for some reason, when everybody kneels down, they, they put their hand down in there. And Lauren asked, why in the world are people putting their hand down in the hole? And I said, because every fourth person gets a Coke. It just sort of comes up. Um, um, and our hearts are prone to do that. We're kind of hoping that some of the magic uh, rubs off on us. But the best thing, the same trip Lauren and I were on, the guy got it right. We're waiting in line to go into the tomb. Uh, and we're in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is also, that's definitely where Jesus was crucified. Archaeologically, that's where he died. Now, whether or not he was buried in this tomb or not is neither here nor there. But we were standing in line, and there was this couple in front of us, and he was a big dude. And he had this shirt on that said, don't mess with Texas. He had a fanny pack on, and he had Birkenstocks on with socks. Like, he was an American. There was no doubt about it. And he was getting all anxious. We'd been in line for well over an hour, and we were probably another hour deep until we got into this tomb. And finally, he looked at his wife and said, I'm out of here. I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'm leaving. And she said, we have come all the way from Midland or someplace like that. We've come all the way from Odessa. And you're not going to wait to see the tomb? And he goes, why? There's nothing in it. It's empty. And then he, and he took off, and I looked at Lauren, I said, he's right. He's right. There's no, actually, there, isn't it amazing that there's no mention in the New Testament of the disciples ever going back to the empty tomb or saying, hey, this is where we now gather. We've, we've turned the tomb into a little church. No, but they said, what did the angel say to them? He's not here. He's not here. And so it's nice to visit those sites and it's nice to have an attachment to the building. But the defining factor of what makes something holy is the presence of the living God. And so Moses was told to take his shoes off because who is this living God? Well, he tries to tell us something about himself in the first instance that he's a fire. And this is not the only time in the Bible that God speaks of himself as a fire. 
Typically, when God speaks of himself as a fire, how does he speak of himself? The fire has a purpose. Refining. Yeah, it's a refiner's fire. It's a purifying fire. And that's what God is in the business of doing, of refining and purifying, of doing the work of a spiritual surgeon on our hearts. He's a consuming fire. And of course, in the life of the Israelites, when they would get into the wilderness, how did God lead his people by night? Fiery pillar. But here is this God who is a refining fire. But this is a fire that is burning this bush, but is not consuming it. And what do you think that God is saying about himself with that fact? Speak up. Y'all have masks on. Sorry. He's eternal. God doesn't have to feed off of anything. He, he, he doesn't need anything to sustain him. He is. He is. Which is why he reveals his name as what? I am who I am. I just am. I am who I am. He's a living God, and that's expressed in his name, Jehovah, which is the name that God gives us. I am. If you put God on one side of the equation, there is nothing to put on the other side. God has no opposite. There is nothing that equals him. And he himself sustains himself. He's his own interpreter. He is existence. He's everything. He's the beginning and he's the end. I mean, that's a remarkable thing to think about, that here is the living God who makes himself known to a trust fund kid who murdered someone and who now is on the lamb in Sinai shepherding his father-in-law's flocks. Well, that's us, isn't it? Now, I don't think anyone here is a shepherd, per se, but, but certainly I think that we can all identify with, if we're really in touch with ourselves, and if God has done that work in our lives, that we can say, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not at the top of the list of people that, that God would necessarily want. I mean, look at his disciples. They're the worst. They, they really are. They're illiterate. One of the things that I always laugh about um, in, in a not very funny moment is when Peter denies the Lord Jesus. Do you know one of the ways by which they were able to identify Peter as someone who was spending time with Jesus? His accent. They're like, you're from Albertville. I can tell. Right? That, that's how they looked on, on people from, from Nazareth and around Galilee. I mean, just a bunch of, I mean, I, I shouldn't use the word, but they're rednecks, right? They were illiterate fishermen, and then he's got a tax collector along the way. And it's just, this is not the A-team. And even when somebody does come to him, the rich young ruler, and remember, he says, good sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, go and sell everything that you have and give it away to the poor. And the man went away sad. And then they had this whole conversation about, wait a minute. One, we could have used that guy. Like this son of man has no place to lay his head. That's for foxes and birds, right? That, this would be great. And this guy has enough capital that we could actually franchise this thing, Jesus. 
And furthermore, because he seems to be such a faithful guy and wants to follow after you, if he doesn't get into heaven, who does? That's when Jesus says it's easier for a rich man uh, to, to go enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And just when we're left in complete despair, Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So as Moses is speaking with God and Moses, he reveals himself as this living God, the Lord says, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up of, to the, of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place that is inhabited by other tribes at this point. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And so he's saying, it is impossible for you to do this, but here's my call on you and know that I'm going to do this. And already we're only a couple verses in and you hear God repeating himself. Now, why does God do that? We're sheep, (laughs) right? God has to repeat. Don't you have to preach to yourself? I know I do. I mean, in those moments where I'm tempted to despair, tempted to disbelieve the gospel, tempted to believe that our God is not the living God, I have to rinse and repeat. I have to tell myself over and over again, this is the God who is. And if this is the God who can deliver his people out of Egypt using this murderer then surely he can help mend the relationship that is broken in my life. Surely he can look over my children. Surely he can provide for me. So he continues to repeat himself to Moses. And in spite of that, verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Of course, we're going to get to that. All the things that happen on that mountain. But you see that it's not just Pharaoh that Moses has to contend with because Moses is right. He says, but wait a minute. What am I supposed to tell these Israelites? You know, you just want me to walk into Egypt and say, I'm in charge because his last encounter with Hebrews, what was that about? Remember, there were two of them fighting and, and Moses tries to intervene and, and be the peacemaker. And one of them says, well, you're going to kill us too, like you killed that Egyptian. Uh, and people are going to remember Moses. Uh, he's not been gone long enough for people to say, I, I don't remember who you, they, they're going to know. But Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they'll ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt and into the land of the Canaanites and all these other tribes that is flowing with milk and honey. Well, that's a big task. And God goes on to give more assurances uh, to Moses that, um, that he is going to go before him and even to warn him about all the various and sundry ways in which things are going to go sideways. Uh, but remember who I am. Remember who I am. Well, this is a really good way to start a relationship, I think, <laughs> uh, with the living God. And, um, you know, I... I wish uh, that God would uh, show up uh, to me in a burning bush uh, that is not consumed, uh, but I would be foolish to think that I would respond in any other way than Moses. But these things are written, uh, Paul says later on uh, in uh, writing to the Corinthians, uh, these things are written so that we might know the Lord. Right. They're being written, they were written down so that you and I could talk about them today and that you and I would know who this living God is that has appeared to Moses and is the same God that brought you out of an even greater bondage than Egypt. He brought you out of the bondage of slavery into new life by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the great miracle that causes all of heaven to sing. And so the angels are singing today as we gather together around God's word as his people. And as we encounter uh, the living God, that we would remember uh, whose presence we're in. And that like Moses, that we would grow to know him, the living God. Questions, comments, concerns? Yeah. Um, yes, uh, I think that that's one of the questions. I'm not going to answer this fully, but I want you to hold in your mind is how is it that that the Midianites, Moses's family, get on board with this? What what causes that? Is it just the manifestation of the burning bush and the witness that Moses has in their life? Or is it that they already have some sort of basic understanding of the Abrahamic faith? Um, uh, because even here we have an indicator that uh, God is saying that they want to go out into the wilderness uh, to sacrifice to the Lord our God. And, and so there does seem to be a sense in which they have uh, some working understanding of it, but how specific it is, we don't know, except that we do know that it becomes specific for them. And I hope that you understand when I talk about a familiarity with God, the difference between a right familiarity versus a fake familiarity. Um, Y'all ever called a customer service line and they start calling you by your first name? And you're like, you don't know me. Right? I, I, uh, a couple years ago, Charles Gaston put up a picture on the internet um, 
when I preached a sermon on knowing God and it has this really heavy set biker guy that has this t-shirt on that says, don't bro me if you don't know me. And, uh, and so, you know, we ought not to have a false familiarity with God, but there is a way through relationship by way of Jesus that we actually can have a real familiarity with God. Okay. Happy Lent, everybody. Um, delighted to have Tim with us uh, this morning. And uh, um, if you weren't uh, at the 915, um, his 1115 sermon will be better. So let's pray. <laughs> Just kidding. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that as you reveal yourself to us in your son Jesus by the words of Scripture, uh, that we would know whose presence we're standing in. And Lord, that we would know you, the great I am, who is and was and is to come. And Lord, that you would do a great work in our hearts that we might uh, be driven to know you in the ways, way that Moses knew you. And that that would be our all-consuming desire and be given wholly over to you to live our lives with such freedom and sanctified abandon, knowing that you are in control. And Lord, that we would be even reckless, gratuitous in the way that we shower the grace that has been given to us into the lives of others, and that we might be given over to serve you uh, with our whole lives, even while the old Adam battles within us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would do all of these things for our good, but above all, for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.